Father God, we thank you for our church family. We thank you, Father, for the fact that we are united by Christ, that we are united by having experienced an ongoing personal relationship with Christ, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. It gives us a longing to be together. It gives us a desire to grow together. It gives us a desire to minister to one another, to open up and let each other in to what's going on in our lives. Lord, it gives us a, a sense of need for your word, not just personally and individually, but as a corporate body, to be led by your truth, to be led by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your presence in each one of our lives, and we thank you, Lord, for your special presence that we have as we come together. We thank you, Lord, that you inhabit the praise of your people. And Father, we thank you for making us a family, for giving us spiritual aunts and uncles and, and spiritual nieces and nephews. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to be attentive to each other's needs. Lord, as we read today about the danger of, of trading what is uh, eternal for what is earthly, we think of how easy it is to even spend years and decades sitting among your people without having a personal relationship with you ourselves. We see how easy it is to have our eyes clouded over a veil over our understanding without you lifting it. Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly to any heart today that does not truly know you as their Savior. I pray, Lord God, that for, for those of us that have your Holy Spirit indwelling us, I pray, Father, that you would provide assurance of that, but also that you would challenge us to not stop in our way, but to continue to follow you in every stage of life, both in the highs and lows, both in the, the fast and the slow paces. Lord, that we would be willing to, to set aside whatever it is that might take us away from, from an intimate walk with you if it would mean to know you better. Lord God, speak to us here by your Holy Spirit. Fill this place, Father, I pray. I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me afresh, that I would speak your words, Lord God, that it would be only be your words that find uh, their resting place in your people's hearts. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've turned in our understanding of, of the book of Hebrews as, as speaking to the fact that Jesus is everything to, to the uh, chapters and chapters of doctrinal understanding of just how important Jesus is to more of the practical applications of this. Uh, but yet there's still these references to, 
to people from Jewish history that these Hebrew readers would have had the name of someone like Esau pop in, you know, mentioned and, and immediately have all the context and, and information in mind. Uh, but we here as, as readers in the, the 21st century, we kind of need to be refreshed or, or informed of who this man Esau is for sure. Well, I'll just warn you, Esau was a man's man. And he was a man's man by, by the world's sense of the term. And there's a danger in being a man's man by the world's definition of that. We're thinking here of the idea of a, of a man's man in the sense of a type of person that's valued by the ungodly world around us. It's the guy that's surrounded by swooning women. And has a swelling wallet and swears just enough to show how cool he is. He keeps his bass boat clean and his sidearm loaded and his venison jerky spicy. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being manly for sure. There's nothing wrong with these things that I've listed off, alright? You guys who are packing, I hope it's loaded, that's great. But the question comes down to whether we're willing, whether that man is willing to let go of the world's idea of manhood, self-reliant, self-focused, living for today, watching out for oneself. The issue comes down to what we believe is valuable and what we're willing to trade for it. So we step into our verses here this morning, I think you'll understand why we're focusing on being a man's man and, and how that, that is illustrated by the, the individual Esau. So we move into Hebrews 12 verses 15 through 17 and it reads, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So as we're looking at following Christ together, we see the danger of being like Esau. And there's a danger that we face as we do church together. Some of us may not really be following Christ. I messed my uh, notes up here, I think, a little bit. Let me see. Brian, we were joking about this. <laughs> Lost a page there somewhere. <laughs> but anyways, the danger there comes from this idea of seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, just let me say a little bit of, of what is said here in seeing the danger that we face. I'm going to grab my phone. Or, or could you bring my phone up to me, Keith? Thank you. Because I'll need to read a passage of Scripture here from, from Genesis when he talks about see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, it's an interesting Greek word here. Thank you. It's, it's a, 
episcopeo. Now, that might sound familiar to you guys. It's kind of related to Episcopal Church, maybe. Um, but also, it's, it's more so, it's, it's related to the Jewish term, uh, or the Greek term for, in its noun form, episkopos. And this episkopos is, is a term that we use for, for an elder, an overseer, a one that watches out over the body of Christ, that, that in a sense they are to see to it that no one is failing to obtain the grace of God. But understand that the, the nature of this verb, though, don't, don't let me make you think that it's just referring to uh, elders. Because we are to watch over one another. We are to be careful with one another's souls, if you will. To see to it that none of us are failing to obtain the grace of God. And this failing to obtain is to, to miss out on something. To miss out on something through one's own fault. That, that every opportunity is there. But it's like it just goes over our heads. We're talking about the danger of church people being close to salvation but no cigar. Or as Warren Wearsby puts it, God's grace does not fail, but we can fail to take advantage of His grace. The main idea that I want to get across here is this. As a church family, we must guard against the gospel losing its intended impact of life-changing salvation. As a church family, we must guard against the gospel losing its intended impact of life-changing salvation. Keep in mind, too, that here in this letter to these Hebrew believers, there are points in time where we've seen them uh, uh, being challenged to what I've called a 100% effect or a 100% inclusion where they will, he, the writer will turn and say, make sure that no one falls short of this. Aim for 100%. And so we see that in this sense too as well. Because of these readers being tempted to get so close to following Christ, but because of the pressure, because of the rejection of their family, the rejection of their Jewish culture that they would immediately be confronted with, They'd be like, okay, I know he's the Messiah, but this is just too much. I can't leave what I know. I can't leave what I value. I can't leave what's been important to me. So that is a part of what's being um, enveloped into this warning. It's going to be helpful for us to learn about this man named Esau. He's the grandson of Abraham. So, so to start out, I'd like for you to meet Esau the meathead. And, and I, I want to explain to you a little bit here that when I say meet Esau the meathead, I don't mean to just be insulting of him like he's dunce, you know, or, 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 or dim-witted or something like that. But instead, I, I want you to under... There's my notes. It's on the back page. Can you believe that? 
I am. There you go. Understand that, that we'll see Esau is a meathead because he's obsessed with meat. We also see that, as Hebrew tells us, he's obsessed with the flesh. The, the, uh, one commentary said uh, that explains that how throughout the Hebrew community, Esau was a sad example of foolishness. The New Testament commentary says this, Esau was regarded as one of the most striking examples of those who failed to appropriate the grace of God. So let's read about Esau, okay? I'm, I'm just going to assume that I say Esau and you're like, Ehu, okay? So we go back to Genesis 25, and I'll explain in a bit here where he fits into the timeline of the Old Testament, but, but Esau is the brother of Jacob, the twin brother. Of Jacob, he's actually the firstborn among the two. Okay, by like matter of minutes. All right, but being the firstborn, this gave him a birthright, which meant he he would receive much more of the inheritance from their father than Jacob would. It also for for J, uh, for Isaac, having been the son of Abraham. It meant the one carrying the birthright would receive the covenant that God gave with Abraham. And I'll explain that in a second here. But, but we go to this moment, this fateful moment for Esau and Jacob in Genesis 25 verses 29 through 34. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew. So Jacob was kind of the, the homelier guy making the food and stuff like that. And Esau came in from the field. And he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was Edom. We won't go into that. He says, let me eat some of that red stew, for, for I am exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. He's kind of like, here's the... Here's the stew, but I want your birthright. So it continues on. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. For what? For food. For a momentary pleasure. For the filling of a bodily need. It says, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now understand here that we can get from the situation that the, the reason why Genesis says thus he despised his birthright is because he, spent, he treated it like something that was worth being traded away. In thus way he had despised his birthright. So I said, you know, looking at the timeline here, Abraham is told that he, he God graciously give, makes a covenant with Abraham. And he is told that it is through him and through his descendants will the nation that will be special to God, God's special people that would be Israel, it, it is going to come through Abraham. And it's going to come through one of his descendants. Now, if you'll see here, it says Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael was actually Abraham's older son. 
Okay, older descendant. But God's plan was that the covenant would pass to Isaac, not Ishmael. And then you see it was Jacob, not Esau. Once again, Esau is the older of the two. But God's plan was that it would pass. Uh, and he actually prophetically said this when, when Rachel was pregnant with the twins, Esau and Jacob. But it would pass from uh, Isaac to Jacob. God's covenant would pass from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. And like I said, this birthright that Esau traded away, it was a much greater portion of an inheritance from their father. It would pass to the firstborn, traditionally. But also, in their case, it would be the passing on from Isaac to one of his sons, the Abrahamic covenant. The one from whom... The all, that, that a nation would be born and through whom all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And you can see here, Jacob has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. So now that we know what the author is talking about when he says, for you know, when he's speaking about Esau, we need to move into our verses here in Hebrews 12. It speaks about Esau. And he says, for you know, because now you know, for you know afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. You know why that is now. It's because he had traded away his birthright for a bowl of soup and some bread. Esau traded what was priceless for what was common. He gave up what could not be replaced. And he learned that it could not be retrieved. Hebrews 12.16 explains the example that Esau became to the Hebrews and to us as we read this. He was sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, it says, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know, I figured out why marathon runners are so thin. They hate food. I mean, they don't care about donut shops or hot dog stands or pizzerias. They can run through iconic American cities and, and not even think about stopping it for a Boston cream pie or a Chicago hot dog or a New York-style slice of pizza. Obviously, that's silly. Marathon runners are skinny because they're crazy. They run a crazy amount, Right? They, would, they wouldn't stop during a race because they're committed to their craft. They're invested. They love to run. They're, they're crazy. And we too should be following Christ out of a life-changing commitment to the gospel. It's not that our commitment changes our life. God changes our life and we make a commitment to Him. We don't, run away, we don't turn away and turn aside because of our grit and determination because we just hate sin, we trust Christ because He has changed us into one who trusts Him. Guys, whether you're a meathead or a motorhead or sports nut, you need to ask yourself, what is my priority? What has God changed me into? Is there anything you would trade for your relationship with Christ? 
Ladies, you, you could be driven to be a garden diva or a super grandma. But you need to ask yourself, what is my priority? Would you trade it for your relationship with Christ? A little more details here. Once Isaac was, was old and ready to die and he was ready to pass the blessing on to his son Esau as the firstborn. He told Esau to, to come and receive his blessing. But Jacob, in, in, in fulfillment of God's uh, plan, but, but actually through his, his trickery, he, he tricked his father into giving him the blessing, the birthright, instead of his older brother Esau. And when Esau came to receive the blessing of the birthright, he learned that Jacob had already been there. And he grieved over it. He, he, he asked his father, isn't there anything left for me? And you wonder if he, he thought back to that moment when he just wanted a bowl of soup and regretted what he had done. He begged his father to bless him, but his father had already given the blessing to Jacob. And through Jacob's treachery, God ensured that the blessing that went with the birthright went to Jacob as he had prophesied. As the writer of Hebrews did, I want to warn us all to guard against Esau-like fleshliness. Guard against fleshliness that is Esau-like. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now remember that there, there is something unique about this letter to the Hebrews. Most other letters in the New Testament, they're written to the church of, the church of Colossae, the church of Philippi. But, but similar to James's letter and, and Peter's letter to, to a number of different uh, cities and such, this is written even more so unique than the, uh, James's letter and those of Peter. It's written to Jewish people. But not Jewish Christians necessarily. It's written to a swath of Jewish people that, that span both those who are considering Christ as the Messiah, those who have decided that Christ is Messiah, but they just don't know if they can sign on to, to, to uh, trusting in Him. And they realize what it's going to cost them with their Jewish family and friends and also a third group that has signed on Jewish people that are like, no turning back. And so keep in mind that this is a part of this warning to the readers of this letter and to the leadership. The, these people are attached with the body of Christ, but they're not sure if they're ready to be a part of it, many of them. So at the core of this warning is, the, is an issue of salvation, as is uh, similar with the other warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. And we must guard against the fleshliness of being unsaved. The, 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 the fleshliness of Esau primarily for that, that um, one group that is is in danger, the readers that are in danger of walking away from Christ... 
having not truly come to salvation, that this is regarding them. As I mentioned before, this is challenging for us as a church to watch over each other, to watch over each other's souls. You might sit with someone in a small group, and you might be thinking, man, as well-meaning as this brother is, I don't know if they really get the gospel. I don't know if they're really a brother in Christ. I want to ask them about it. I want to talk to them about it. I want to, I want to remind them this is what the gospel is. Is this what you have adopted? Or do you need to do that still? Let, repent and trust Christ, brother. We should be doing that. Again, when he talks about failing to obtain, it's to miss out on something through one's own fault. It's not like, man, I looked and looked and looked for God and I just could never find Him. We're talking about the danger of people understanding the gospel but not being born again. Or as one writer says, God's grace, as I mentioned, does not fail, but we can fail to take advantage of His grace. This is a large part of why I try to share the gospel every Sunday in some way. Even if justice to explain it as all we have is our sin before knowing Christ. And all of us, all have fallen short of the glory of God because all of us have sinned. All of us are sinners. And the wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Meaning we have the opportunity because of Christ's death on the cross to recognize that my sin gets me nowhere with God. But God offers me Christ's righteousness through his death and his resurrection. So I can exchange the two. I can recognize my sin was laid on Christ. He paid for it. And I can receive God is my father rather than my judge by receiving Christ's righteousness to count for me. I try to explain that every Sunday, both for you guys to re recognize and see how easy it is to explain, but also for those of you that might have been sitting in these chairs for all of your adult life, that the Holy Spirit might open your eyes for you to wonder, do I truly know him? And for, the, for you to ask God if that be the case. Because of in obedience, the nature of this, that we should be seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Even as they sit among us. So we're also to guard against the fleshliness of defiling bitterness. And, and this is closely related to the idea of failing to receive the grace of God. But I think that we can apply this to us even as believers as well. But if you can imagine as, as um, well, it's, it's closely related grammatically. That's just what I'm going to tell you. But anyways, we need to guard against the fleshliness of defiling bitterness as well. It's those without the Holy Spirit that are most likely to be the ones that complain that the music just doesn't put them in a worshipful mood. Or to excuse their lack of growth by saying, I just don't get anything out of the messages. 
the root, this root of bitterness, the way that it's set up grammatically, it's really anything that bears the fruit of bitterness is, is explained or should be understood. There must be, if there's the fruit of bitterness, there must be a root of bitterness going on. You know, in Rapid City, uh, we had um, a, a city dump and a city yard waste area, and that yard waste area would produce mulch, you know, wood mulch and stuff. They would grind it up and, and provide it uh, for free, uh, or maybe it was like five bucks a truckload or something like that. You know, it's something crazy. But I, I was told by a friend, don't get mulch from the city dump. And I was like, why? They said, well, in the mulch, there's these little white tubes. And, and you don't realize it, but those little white tubes are roots. And, and most of those little white tube roots are Virginia creeper. And so there's a danger in it that, that you're going to get this mulch in order to try to control the weeds, but you're actually planting weeds of Virginia creeper into your flower beds. Well, how did they learn that these roots were, were of these weeds? You know, did they pick, take one up and be like, I better, I better go investigate this and take it to the county extension office or something like that and have them put it under a microscope? No. They put it in their garden and they got weeds. And they put two and two together and realized those are the roots of weeds. I'm embedding roots of weeds into my flower bed. That's the same idea here. That, that when bitterness develops among us, we need to look at it and realize, I must be allowing a root of bitterness to be there. Well, folks, how, how much good does it do if you've planted Virginia creeper or, or, or something crazy like kudzu or something accidentally into your garden? If you just sit there and go out with your scissors every now and then and just try to control the vine. No, you're going to want to go and get the root out. And too often, we can have bitterness developing in our hearts. And he's talking specifically within the body of Christ. And we just sit there and kind of control the vine. Well, I just got to make sure it doesn't creep out too often. You know, that could be embarrassing. Now, now understand when he uses a discussion of the root of bitterness... The, un, the idea here is you got to get the root out. you got to deal with it. If, if bitterness is developing, there is a root of bitterness that you need to deal with. And bitterness is dangerous because it's defiling. You know, that Virginia creeper is going to pretty, pretty soon, it's going to suck the nutrients right out of the soil. It's going to wrap itself around that flower, that, that bush that you're growing, that you want there, that you want for it to grow and be strong. But eventually, it'll just defile the rest of it. And that's the warning here for the body of Christ. The root of bitterness will defile the rest of the body. I want to challenge you with this. As with so often, if you find bitterness in your heart, start with this one statement. It's not about me. It's not about my desires. I like to joke that, that you know, if somebody says, I, I, I really don't enjoy the worship, I say, you know what? 
if, if we're doing this thing right, all of us should be unhappy with the worship at least 50% of the time. Because, praise God, we're a, we're a broad uh, swath of generations. We're a broad swath of, of, of backgrounds with the Lord. And so we should be uh, providing worship that, that if in our flesh at least, we're only happy with about 50% of the time. And the, and the time when we're not necessarily, it's not our preference, we can stop and say, well, you know what, it must be somebody else's. Lastly, we need to guard against the fleshliness of sensuality. He says, that guarding against here, seeing to it, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Warren Wiersbe also says, Esau is a warning to us not to live for lesser things. He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup and some bread. The terms that are used here to describe the situation, unholy means to be being worldly instead of having an interest of eternal things. Our world is constantly telling us that earthly things are all that matter. We're being told by, that, that God's kingdom is a world away rather than it, it's to be lived for now. That we are to be asking the Lord to build it here. That we would pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it begins with him reigning over the desires of our hearts. We're tempted to believe that our church family is a Sunday check-in. Instead of our real family as God made it to be. Whose hearts and minds resonate with our hearts and minds that are set on Christ. This term for sexually immoral, we would recognize it. The Greek term is porneia. Porneia. Our world is constantly pulling us toward fornication and sexual immorality through our eyes. We're told that Esau despised his birthright. And this is God's interpretation of him not valuing it over a full belly. Or, or, or it goes on, we can learn more in the book of Genesis, that one thing that really grieved Esau's parents is that he had gone out to the women of the world, the surrounding uh, a people, and gotten one wife after another. In fact, the more he saw that it enraged his parents, the more he did it. Because his heart was set on fleshly indulgence. Not on whether God approved of his actions or not. You know, I have a family member who early in his marriage, actually from, from before his marriage, he was consumed with pornography. It spanned into his marriage. He confessed that that any time his, his wife left the house, he saw it as an opportunity to, to go and rent a movie. Of course, now you can just, if you're unwise and don't have blocking stuff on your phone, you can just pull it up there. 
But he was, he, was, he was immoral in mind like Esau because of the pornography that he was filling it with. And he, he had a co-worker who was a female, much younger than him. And we, we can remember him talking about um, uh, his job would, would cause them as, kind of, as, as partners in their work to, to be alone together a lot. And we can remember... Uh, saying to one another, even saying to his wife, um, this doesn't sound good. Well, one day that, that young, beautiful co-worker came on to him. One day for her it was go time. And when the opportunity presented itself, because of where his mind was at, he thought it was a dream come true. He thought it was a dream come true, but it was actually a doorway into a nightmare. For him and for his family. We all need to ask ourselves, what would we trade? What's the treasure, the worldly treasure that would cause us to live only for today, only for that moment? Sin is fun for a moment. So's jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. It's the afterward that you have to worry about, right? If our hearts are pulled towards immorality, if we are unholy, treating the things of God like they're nothing compared to what the world has to offer, we won't care about that moment. For some of us, it might just be a phone call from a friend about a Sunday morning tea time. And we think, I'm off. That's a warning. So let that be a warning to your heart. For others, it's, a, it's that one deadline after another. It's like a carrot on the stick pulling us away from fellowship. Now nah, i got something to do. I can't be there. We need to keep an eye on our hearts. For others, it's a woman that walks by. And if you get whiplash from that, guys, that's a bad sign. There's something crazy here about Esau's lack of repentance. It's that there was no chance of it because of the deadness of his heart. Lastly, I just want to point out, beware of Esau-like unrepentance. We read in verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent Though he sought it with tears. Now let me just make a mention here. We can see, we can make, we can read this and think that it's saying he wanted to repent. He was repenting, but but he was rejected. No, the it, when it says he sought it with tears, is the blessing that he wanted. That that birthright that he had already traded away. And the reason why he couldn't get it and because he was rejected is because he was unable, he found no chance to repent. The place where he found no chance to repent was in his heart, was in the deadness of his heart. And because of this, even though he sought the blessing with tears, this New Testament passage is telling us, because of his unrepentance, he wasn't going to get it. Esau later wanted the blessing that he had traded along with his birthright. But we're told that he was rejected because he couldn't repent. Think of how children grow up. 
One of the first things that they, that they learn to say when they figure out that they're independent, I do it. I do it. It often is a response to tying their shoe or buttoning their shirt or cutting their food, right? But hopefully they accept pretty soon that they need the help of their parents, the the help that their parents are offering, the help that others are offering. But what about the person that is determined to do everything for themselves? Right up into an adulthood, but their heart is stopped. The shock paddles are charged and ready to go. But they're all alone because they never let anybody into their life. How good does I do it work then? And the life-saving help is just inches away, but their self-reliance has made it impossible for them to be brought to life. In the same way, the person that resists God's life-changing, saving grace finds themselves unable to repent at some point. They might see everything that's wrong in their lives. They might close the door. They've closed the door in repentance when the opportunity was there, and now they, all they can do is grieve what could have been. If you've never allowed God to do His saving, sanctifying work on your sinful heart, your sinful heart may not allow you to repent even once you've recognized the shape that you're in. That's the sad truth here. Receiving salvation is as simple as placing our total trust in Christ for that salvation. But reaching out to other things for meaning and trusting in them for our future is contrary to the gospel. It may be evidence that we don't trust Christ in the first place. Evidence of salvation in our lives is that we value the relationship with God that we say we received. Like Esau, you can be in danger of trading what is priceless for what is common. And many sit in their church community and let the gospel float by them thinking, there the preacher goes talking about that Jesus again. Like Esau, many young people who've grown up in church give up what could not be replaced. Rather than pursuing and receiving a personal relationship with Christ, they settle for living by their parents' faith or coming for a Christian home. And they find themselves without a relationship with God and without biblical convictions as adults. Like Esau, too many learn that the opportunity for God's saving grace can't be retrieved. And they realize that later they didn't pick up from the gospel what others did. They don't have a relationship with God the kind of their peers or their parents. And they wonder what it was all about. And they just can't seem to even care enough to realize the deadness of their souls. We say, if you know Christ is your Savior, you have a birthright. You have a birthright as well. It's called walking by the Spirit. And we're told that it's by walking by the Spirit that we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. It's not about gritting it out. It's not about relying on our flesh in order to defeat the flesh. 
It's about coming to God and saying, you have given me the right to walk by your spirit. Give me that, Lord. But like Esau, we can trade away our birthright by choosing to walk in our flesh. This is what we must constantly encourage one another to fight against. And we must watch out to make sure that none of us fails to enter into a relationship with God by His grace. Let's be about that for one another. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I pray that my words might not make someone who knows you think that they don't. And I pray that they might not make someone who does not know you think that they do. Lord, I trust your Holy Spirit to meet each one of us exactly where we are. And I pray for open hearts to receive it, Lord, to respond, to repent of and in the manner that each one of us needs that to be. That we can walk with you more closely. That we can keep from trading what is irreplaceable for what is common. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.